Well, it's, it's five o'clock, so we should begin. Okay. Okay, and uh, comrades, this is an uh, online communist forum organised jointly by CPGB and Labour Party Marxists. And this week we've got Chris Knight, who you can see with a nice background and shirt, <laughs> and uh, talking about uh, communism has the worm turned. There you are. His book is now, it's 1991 that your book was published, Chris. Uh, yeah, this is the book, 1991. We're trying a bit early because um, for the 30th anniversary, it was published in September. But um, thanks very much, uh, comrades, for remembering the anniversary. And it's prompted us in the Radical Anthropology Group to consider having a party um, on, in September with um, balloons, hats, crackers and fancy dress to celebrate properly. Uh, but anyway, thanks very much, very much appreciated. And of course, it's appropriate that a book which was dedicated to um, exploring Marx and Engels and their work on history and, and among other things on human evolution and origins, because of course Engels wrote quite a bit on that. It's appropriate that my book, which was exploring to what extent does that Marxist perception of human origins, to what extent does it stand up as it stood the test of time? Uh, and can, you, and can, can we say this measured up in the, in the light of modern scientific knowledge? Obviously a huge amount of knowledge uh, since the time when um, Marx and Engels were writing. So it's, it's uh, appropriate that um, it's the communists who are um, organizing this event. I'm very grateful, very pleased. So um, the short version is that 30 years after the publication of my book, well, mm, it's, it's almost as if I never wrote it, as far as huge sections of anthropology, archaeology, evolutionary anthropology, the one thing you do not mention, the one thing one does not mention, is Chris Knight and his book, uh, Blood Relations. Um, with a few exceptions, and I'll come on to those. I mean, we've certainly made major, I mean, progress in, t in terms of the evolutionary emergence of symbolic behavior in the, in the light of the ochre record of human evolution. I'll, I'll talk about that later. But in a way, there's a kind of paradox. When my book was published in 1991, I, I couldn't have hoped for more positive reviews. It got fantastic reviews in the London Review of Books, all the, the, Royal, the Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute, the Times Higher Educational Supplement, the Times Educational, I mean, wherever, wherever there were reviews, and there were lots of reviews. In fact, in a sense, the, the major figures in anthropology, Mary Douglas, Clive Gamble, Chris Stringer, Robin Dunbar, um, David Lewis Williams, um, I mean, I could go on. The major figures in reviewing my book they, 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 they made it very clear in all the reviews, this was an astonishing um, achievement. Yes, they weren't too keen on starting every chapter with a quote from Karl Marx, um, but, but I mean, every single review uh, was just saying, what, you know, whatever we think of Knight's politics, we don't necessarily agree with his politics, it's, a, it's an astonishing achievement. So that was, the, that was at the time. Um, and I suppose the short version of what's happened 30 years on is that, well, quite a few things have happened. Um, and um, clearly, uh, I mean, immediately after, just before I published the book and immediately afterwards, I was making 
um, friends. Um, so I made an alliance with uh, Lionel Sims that many of you have, have heard speak at, at the Communist University, with Ian Watts, the, the archaeologist, with Camilla Power. And um, we formed a team and we did amazing things. Um, and in my view, if, if science were allowed to be autonomous, if science didn't keep coming up against political obstacles, the theory which I put forward and which others have helped me develop would now be kind of mainstream. It would now be acknowledged that yes, uh, human language, culture, religion, kinship emerged not just through Darwinian evolution, but through a process which culminated in revolution. I mean, that would be widely agreed. And also if it wasn't for political interference, it would be just, just, part, just part of the mainstream that where, where, where cooperation, where the establishment of formal systems of kinship, where the establishment of group level morality is concerned, where the rule against incest, the rule against rape, where those moral questions were concerned, uh, it would be mainstream that women played um, a leading role. Um, but we, we come up against politics. Um, and, and, um, and even today, most versions of human origins theory either assume that the male sex was preponderant and, and predominant right throughout the whole of evolution, that that's very much mainstream, or they say something like, um, well, we use the word man all the way through, man the hunter, man the thinker, man the toolmaker. We kind of include women in that, um, but it's a kind of unisex version which in practice leaves out half um, the population. Um, so perhaps just, I don't know how many people here, um, I imagine most of you here, from the fact that those of you <laughs> probably know the basis, basis of the theory. The theory is simply this, it's that the fundamental rule, the fundamental cultural and moral rule, which, which gave rise to the levels of cooperation which humans are capable of, which gave rise to the kind of cooperation and trust which made language possible, that the most fundamental rule uh, was the rule against rape the rule the prohibition on rape so not i'm not just saying the incest taboo i'm not saying um, you know various other versions of sexual harassment and, and abuse i'm saying in general that that it, the category of rape it to me captures everything and if you ask um which section of the population was most likely to have established the rule against rape I was saying in blood relations, well, just think about which sex suffers most from rape. I and mean, of course, men can be raped, men are raped and, and so on. We, we all know those things, but overwhelmingly um, it's the female sex. Uh, the female sex suffers most from rape and also the consequences of rape in terms of pregnancies are felt by the female more than the male. And so that's kind of the basics of the, of the theory. And, and yet, even today, you'll find that that is that is that there's no recognition, almost no recognition that that kind of must be true. And we still find kind of the argument that men invented the incest taboo. That's the Claude Lévi-Strauss view. But we also find men invented nearly everything else, and it's still the the, the, the main theory. So, how do I feel in approaching this whole topic of my book? um and where it is now what for me is the wider historical social and intellectual context so perhaps i want to start by saying that i don't agree that the current situation 
that we find ourselves in. I mean, we now find ourselves in a situation of where the, clearly we've got the pandemic globally, we've got the rise of new forms of nationalism, we've got above all um, the, the possibility of climate, looming climate catastrophe. I don't believe that all these things that are, which make up the situation we're in today were inevitable or even likely. Actually, my own view is that judged from the point of view of the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, much more likely would have been that we would have achieved the revolution before the end of the last century and we would now be living in what I call communism in motion. Communism in motion is a way of describing the kind of communism that we lived in as we first became human and escaped from the, the levels of political dominance and coercion and competition and conflict which characterize most monkey and ape societies. And the term communism in motion, I imagine most of you have heard it before, was actually invented by a, a close colleague of ours in RAG, uh, Morna Finnegan. Um, and what it means is that you don't have a system. You don't have a stable situation called the communist system. Instead, you have resistance and this resistance mounts and it becomes revolution. But instead of a revolution which then fixes a new stable state called egalitarianism or something else maybe called communism, what you have is you have a revolution which is periodic. So you win the revolution and in order to repeat the revolution, you need to kind of know how to lose it kind of on purpose, but only temporarily. So you win the revolution, you let the other side have their turn, but not for too long in order to, to, to produce the kind of threat which, which then will trigger a new revolution. And so the revolution becomes a kind of periodic rhythm. So um, if that was applied to the today's situation, you wouldn't have capitalism forbidden by state coercion or by state legislation. You'd have capitalism curbed, resisted, overthrown by resistance, strike action, general strike action, resistance, street action, revolution in other words. But instead of having a revolution which then fixes a thing called communism, you allow elements of the, of the opposition to um, return in order to be able to repeat your revolution again and again and again. And so you have a periodic rise and fall of revolution. Um, and the reason for supposing that that might have been the, the future is simply because that is how in the radical anthropology group, we think the human revolution worked. You didn't have a permanent thing called egalitarianism. There wasn't a communist system. Hunter-gatherers didn't, weren't able to lie back and think, okay, everything's fine now, we've got communism. There was always the danger of um, alpha male dominance reasserting itself. There's all the male, always the danger of, of some kind of hierarchy being reestablished. And therefore there was always the, the need for vigilance and solidarity and resistance and revolution. But this revolution didn't simply end the previous um, kinds of social relationships. It simply boxed them in, uh, transcended them, and, and, and in, in a way made, it, made, it, made everything, everything possible because an element of counter-revolution, an element of individualism, an element of, in, of competition and conflict is fine as long as it doesn't end up taking over the entire society. So that's, that's the idea of communism in motion. And the, the title of this talk is whether the worm has turned in the sense of whether 
we are on the on the point of kind of realizing that something like that form of libertarian communism is the only way in which we can get out of the current mess that we're all um, in. Um, it's actually quite difficult for me to talk about where we are now in relationship to where we were in the 90s and the kind of hopes that I had and so many others of us had in those times, particularly I think in the late 80s and early 90s, it's quite difficult for me to talk about because I do feel that um, the most likely outcome was the revolution. I, I, I felt that at the time, I don't see any reason for changing my mind. And there's a sense in which I feel that yes, we revolutionaries kind of messed up. I don't exclude myself from that. And so it's kind of, it isn't, it isn't easy. So in this talk, let me say something about three things. Why I wrote the book, what happened when it was published in, in a bit more detail than I've said already, and then what has happened in the 30 years um, since. Now, why I wrote the book. Um, let me just give you some of the background. Um, when I got to university, it was Sussex, and when I was there in 1962, 63, 64, very rapidly we became what was described so often in the media as we became a red base. And um, I was doing Russian studies. I'm, I, after being there a year, I met up with Alan Woods, which somebody, a comrade I'm sure some of you know about. And uh, I, I was heavily involved in obviously political discussions. I, I edited the student newspaper, we called it the Wine Press. I was fascinated by the, the course I was involved with, with my, with my teacher, Robin Milner-Gullen. And I kind of got to know about the Russian Revolution by knowing about the poetry of the time, the art of the time, Vladimir Kleblikov, the great um, poet, um, Vladimir Tatlin, who produced, of course, Tatlin's Tower, the Monument to the Third International, Mayakovsky, you had, you had, you had this, Prokofiev, Meyerhold, you had Cuba futurism. In other words, you had um, the futurism which and, and Cubism, which became so strong in, in, in Western Europe, but became nowhere stronger than in Russia in the build-up towards the Russian Revolution. And uh, let me just say that although the, my closest friends were beginning to, to form the militant tendency, and, my, and we, we were, as I say, we were heavily involved in politics and I hardly ever went to any lectures and I learned almost everything I learned at Sussex University from my friends, my colleagues and comrades. Um, it, I was very slow to become um, a Marxist. And I'll tell you why. I, 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 of course, naturally, like everyone else at the time, I'd read about Stalin. And my problem was that I knew that revolutions so often start out with enormous ideals and hopes and those hopes don't get fulfilled the outcome of the revolution at the end of the day is so often a nightmare so bad that you can argue and in many cases it's legitimate to argue the outcomes the results final results um, were worse than where you started the english revolution ended with cromwell invading ireland attacking the levelers the french revolution didn't end so well in some, in countless ways you can argue that at the end of the day huge gains were made and of course the russian revolution ended in in disaster and ended in stalinism and so the question i was asking myself was how do i commit to this revolution when we don't seem to have too much evidence for a revolution that worked did any revolution really work? 
And it was not until after several years, and I was much slower than most of my comrades to come over to the idea of a, of a revolution, it was not until I discovered the human revolution um, that I became committed to, if you like, the revolution. In other words, when I became committed to what my comrades in Sussex were calling the revolution, it was only when I kind of realized, why right, what this revolution is in reality, it's the process of moving from a kind of animal state of existence to a human one. It's a repetition on a higher level of the process of becoming human. And it's only when I realized that this revolution was that big, it was almost as if we were learning to speak to one, one another for the first time, learning how to trust one another across the planet for the first time, becoming human for the first time, it was only when I kind of realized that that's the revolution in reality, it's a rep repetition on a higher dialectical plane of the human revolution that I became committed. Um, and as I'm sure some of you know, the re my reading at that, that stage, because I was within the, the militant tendency, we, were, we had our, our weekly um, readings. And of course, it was Engels, the, the, the origin of the family, private property in the state, and particularly his prefaces to that work, where Engels made clear um, that the transition from ape to man was a social and sexual revolutionary process. Um, and he, I won't go into it here, but I mean, anyone who reads Engels will know, will know that he, he wasn't shy of talking about questions of sex uh, and, and, and argued, in fact, that the alpha male jealousy of the, of the, of the, of the typical of, of so many great apes was actually the obstacle preventing the, the, the kind of solidarity on which uh, humans uh, as hunter-gatherers eventually um, came to depend. And, that, and that, that jealousy, as he called it, of the, of the individual male, the possessiveness of the individual male, the, the, com the, the competitiveness of the male in, in, in seeking uh, control over, over, over harems of females, that had to be broken for the revolution to be as, uh, accomplished. Of course, as well as that, of course, there was Sigmund Freud with his famous totem and taboo, his argument, very similar actually to Engels, the idea that there was essentially a, a primal horde, a kind of ape-like, kind of ape tyrannical male, um, lording it over his, um, his harem of females, excluding the, his, his own sons and, and brothers. And, and one fine day, according to Freud, um, the, the excluded the males, males who had been excluded from sex, rose up, killed their father, killed the, the alpha male, and established um, a, a matrilineal clan. A rather strange, oversimplified, slightly weird, I suppose, um, theory, but at least it had the idea of revolution, and, and including a sexual revolution in there, just as Engels had. But more important for me in terms of being much more convincing was Marshall Salins, an article which he'd just published in the Scientific American in 1960, called The Origins of Society. I would really recommend that to comrades if you, if you were interested in this whole topic because Sarnins argued that early hunter-gatherer egalitarianism was not a, a kind of gradual result of improvements on monkey or ape social systems. He, he argued that actually the further back you go in history, the, the more egalitarian, the more communistic, if you like, uh, is human society. Whereas if you take monkeys and apes, there's, there's, no, there's no suggestion really that they're becoming more and more um, communist or egalitarian as a, as a fundamental break, as he put it, and and in fact he argued that that break was um, was a was a he called it the greatest reform in history. But anyone reading that 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 article will realise what he really meant was a revolutionary overturn of primate society, which he described as the victory 
of culture over nature. Um, but uh, so anyway, I was reading all that stuff, but I, 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 perhaps I should emphasize, I was never the slightest bit interested in being an academic. Um, my whole purpose of reading all this stuff was to find for myself, I suppose, first and foremost, confidence that a revolution was possible. Uh, and increasingly, I realized that the point which Marx and Engels made about the future communism being a repetition on a higher level of what they call primitive communism, there was a kind of logical consequence in that. Supposing communism, supposing you agree with Marx and Engels, who said, when we get to communism, it won't be the first time we'll be coming back home to where we are, where we feel at home, because communism is natural to us. We feel able to laugh and joke and relax with our equals. Um, and when we get to communism, it will be in, on some level return um, to the communism of our hunter-gatherer past. Well, if you think about that, if the communism is a return, then it makes logical sense, I think, that the, the method of getting to that communism must also be a return. It simply means that if the human revolution, if you needed a revolution to get to primitive communism, you'll need something like repetition of that human revolution to get to future communism. And that simply meant that the, the future revolution would have to be a repetition on a higher level of the human revolution. And so we have this idea that nothing, nothing totally new happens. You know, things may be new in, in the course of human evolution as, as well as the evolution of life on this planet. But what you get is repetitions on different levels. And that's the fundamental idea of the dialectic, of course, the Hegelian dialectic. But it's also absolutely central to what's nowadays called um, complexity theory or fractal geometry, the idea of invariance through transformations of scale. As you, as you go up or down in scale in a fractal, you find yourself coming back to where you were before, but on a, on a higher level or perhaps a lower level. So um, let me just say, I've, I said earlier on that my, when my book came out, it was terrific reviews. Um, Clive Gamble, Mary Douglas, David Lewis Williams, Robin Dunbar, I mean, just possibly, um, I, I don't know, is it helpful to me to, to say this? Just a few quotes from here. This is Alex Walter of um, Rutgers University about my book. And I'm reading out these quotes just to show the kind of contrast between how it was initially received and then what happened afterwards. So this is Alex Walter. This book may be the most important ever written on the evolution of human social organization. Robin Dunbar, revolutions in science seldom appear ready-made, but I suspect that the basis of a new synthesis between anthropology and biology may well lie within the pages of this book. Uh, I mean, one of the reviews I loved most of all was Caroline Humphrey in the London Review of Books. Chris Knight is a good Marxist, believing in class struggle, trade union activism, worker solidarity, and most of all, in Engels' version of primitive communism and the early matriarchate. This theory is designed to cock a snook at every premise which sleeps undisturbed in our current assumptions. The result is an exhilarating, exhilaratingly original edifice of astonishing range. So she said that my idea that women have <laughs> women established the rule against rape, she said, yeah, it sounds a bit weird. The women get very close to each other and their menstrual cycle. She said, it's, it sounds weird, but Caroline Humphrey, um, she said, but, but read it, you know, because when you actually read the book, it seems to make astonishing amount of, of sense. It's very hard to argue against it if you actually read the detail. And then another review, this is the poet Peter Redgrove, blood relations appears to solve most of the outstanding conundrums in contemporary anthropology. And it, it goes on. I say, it got, you couldn't have asked for more positive reviews. I mean, of course, there were some negative ones. Um, 
Chris Harmon and the Socialist Workers' Party called the whole thing menstrual moonshine. And, I, and one, one uh, feminist wrote a review where she complained that I was using Darwinism and Darwinism, everybody, everyone knows, means um, deceit and competition and conflict and manipulation. And therefore, she didn't like the whole thing. But I mean, overwhelmingly, I got these extremely um, positive reviews. So why, what exactly happened afterwards? Um, some very good things happened. I could perhaps just hold up a few books. One of them is this fantastic book. Can everyone see this? This is, <laughs> this is Human Origins, Contributions from Social Anthropology, um, edited by um, three uh, women, um, Camilla Power, Mona Finnegan, and Hilary Callan. And this is the first time there's been a book where social anthropologists have engaged with biological anthropologists and archaeologists. It might sound strange, but you'd be, you'd be astonished, people who aren't familiar with the discipline of anthropology, how barbed wire fences divide up the different uh, subdisciplines within anthropology, so that social anthropologists never talk to Darwinians or biological anthropologists. Usually the social anthropologists imagine anyone Darwinian must be a closet racist, fascist, sexist, and all the rest of it. And of course, the Darwinians in turn, they just think the, the social people and cultural people are just politically correct idiots who don't know what science is. And then within archaeology, you get a sort of strange attempt to avoid those conflicts by going off each archaeologist inventing their own completely individual kind of paradigm, starting from nothing without any kind of constraints at all, far too often. But anyway, this, is, that, this book is a major breakthrough, in, in my view. But, but, but perhaps I should, um, before... Um, coming to the, the, the really recent years, the last five or six years or so, go back to what happened immediately after um, blood relations. Um, I was very confident. Um, I, I, found, I thought, well, I've written this book and perhaps I should explain it this way. Um, for me, you weren't gonna get the revolution if it wasn't in itself a scientific revolution, or even the scientific revolution, the consummation of the scientific revolution, which you can argue began maybe with, with Galileo. So for me, it wasn't a question of developing an ideology. Um, it was a question of pursuing science. And when I say science, I mean, I've just been science in the kind of ordinary sense. There's a thing called science, and to me, it's amazing. And it's amazing because real science is autonomous, it's brave, it, it finds out things which may be completely against all current assumptions, may be completely counterintuitive. Um, and for me, um, science is revolutionary. And um, I don't at all believe that Karl Marx wanted to develop a science called Marxism. And I don't believe even today that Marxism is a science. I think that's a, that's a shocking kind of pseudo-Stalinist <laughs> complete mistake. There's a thing called Marxism. And if you're a Marxist, you must be a scientist. And you don't have to do any real science because you're a Marxist and Marxism is a science. I mean, all that sort of stuff to me is complete rubbish. Karl Marx understood that there's a thing called science and something about science is um, different from ideology. So the way I think of it is, as actually Leon Trotsky put this pretty well, he said, science is knowledge which endows us with power. Of course, the word us is the crucial one there. Science is knowledge which endows us with power, meaning us as humans. And, and, and that 
and that's that's simply because what science is it's like you check with others you you say if i'm looking at some part of the universe some some maybe it's some odd thing some um, black hole in the universe some red giant some you know i don't know what some part of the universe you're looking through a telescope and the crucial thing is you might see something but do other people who, who use similar telescopes do they see the same thing so the crucial question is do you see what i see there's something immediately accountable about science you can't just be a guru you can't have visions you can't have inspirations you've got to check out with others whether what you found is what others can find using the same apparatus maybe and so but that has to that has to expand indefinitely and so you have two ways of looking at the world really you can have the kind of knowledge which empowers some of us at the expense of others so if your knowledge empowers men but not women uh, white people but not black people rich people but not poor people i mean that's ideology ideology almost well, i would say the definition of ideology it's the kind of knowledge which empowers certain section of the population at the expense of others science is just knowledge which is empowering so just knowing that well, you know i don't know just take a most simple thing uh water electrolyze it you get two volumes of hydrogen for one of oxygen well i mean you know it doesn't matter who you are you could be protestant catholic rich poor male female black white whatever it is knowing that those sort of basic things will give you the capacity to accomplish certain processes and just apply that across the board and you've got science and of course applying it across the board means it's knowledge which gives us power us humans power right across the board um but the point is of course when you're doing natural science um finding you know working out maybe you're a cosmologist you're trying to work out what dark matter is or something scientists can probably reach agreements pretty much irrespective of their hanging ups their ideologies their politics but as soon as your science begins to encroach upon issues of po direct political significance and especially in other words when you move to the edge of natural science and start approaching the boundaries of social science and then political science, then of course politics kicks in. And it's just, in my view, what Marx was trying to do was trying to just do science, but, but use the methods of natural science. Obviously they'd need a certain, you know, you need to do a few things to the methods of natural science in order to accomplish the, the task of, of dealing with with, with history and, and economics and culture and, and, and so on it can't just be a natural scientist you can't just assume that humans do, do things for reasons of physics or chemistry it's a bit more complicated than that but what marx was trying to do was to do was to pursue science in the face of political opposition and so in my view anyone who reads marx carefully will know that he was he was he was working towards a scientific breakthrough in the understanding of what it means to be human which would then have political consequences, revolutionary consequences. Um, so having published my book, I was full of optimism that the revolution should be <laughs> relatively straightforward. Um, and I wrote a thing called Female Space Invaders. And, and it was an attempt to follow through the logic of the new form of Darwinism. And again, this is a whole nother story, of course, but I, I don't know how much interest it comrades in the CPGB are in all, in all this, but what happened in the 70s and 80s was that the old form of Darwinism, which used to be called group selection, got completely exploded and replaced by a new form of Darwinism, initially known as selfish gene theory. That term tends to have vanished a bit, 
uh, alongside various other terms. And another term which tends to have gone by the wayside is sociobiology. Sociobiology just means biologists who know that animals have social lives and social relationships, and they're worthy of study as much as anatomy and brain neurophysiology and so on. The social strategies of dolphins, elephants, butterflies, <laughs> bees, whatever social insects, they're worthy of study. And, it tend, and that's, a, that's a sort of social science, but within the framework of Darwinism. But what happened in the 70s was that group selection was shown essentially not to work, or if it did work, only under very exceptional circumstances. And I need to stress, group selection was essentially race against race. The idea that races, groups such as races, uh, competed against each other, and the, the, the fittest race um, or group, um, and, and the, the proponent of this theory would think of nations as, you know, in kind of rather like races, rather like species of animals, the British um, are very successful, the Brits are very successful, you know, they're, they're fit, they've, obviously, they've ended up ruling Africa, so obviously they're pretty fit. That whole race against race idea uh, was completely exploded by um, the, the, the proponents of what became known as surface gene theory, and surface gene theory is simply the idea that a gene um, replicates itself, and a gene which replicates the competition isn't going to be around for very long. And it's got nothing whatever to do with selfishness. Selfish gene theory just means the genes replicate, but those genes which do replicate themselves can be genes for extraordinary levels of altruism, generosity, love, solidarity, or whatever. There's no way is selfish gene theory a validation of selfishness. Anyway, in Female Space Invaders, a little pamphlet I wrote, and, I, and it was published by my, my political group, Labour Briefing, but I kind of wrote it sort of for myself. The idea was to follow through the logic of the theory which I'd outlined in my book, Blood Relations, in a much more parsimonious uh, and genetically precise way. Having, having first been told, actually I was told by my, I was teaching, um, uh, I was a supply teacher in Thomas Tallis School in Kidbrook, and the maths teacher there said, Chris, what you've done is you've worked out a fractal. Your whole theory is fractal geometry. You've argued that complexity develops in a way which fractal geometers immediately understand and I tried to write it that way and I just thought okay I'm going to write a, a, a kind of a, I call it like a female space event it was like a computer game and partly that was inspired by various um, Darwinians who used the analogy of a computer game to explain how genes replicate one, one another and of course you can model those things on computers and what I did is I I told the whole story in that framework and then I thought, right, why don't I just move forward a bit? What happens next if the fractal continues? And um, it just seemed fairly clear what kind of had to happen. Um, I'm going to now say something which is a bit difficult for me to say because it's, 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 um, it is hard for me to explain this. Um, I've got bits of my life which I know now don't seem to add up very well. Why did Chris Knight start banging his drum? Well, I mean, literally banging a drum. I actually got a lovely big drum, in fact, two drums from some uh, Native Americans in a, in a shop in Chicago, and I started banging my drum. Um, and this turned into, um, it, at my college, um, the Barking Bat, a samba band. And that then turned into Rhythms of Resistance. And, and then that turned into um, in Chicago, the Infernal Noise Brigade. And we had these samba bands all over Europe um, in the period between about 1995 and 1998 and 1999. And I can just explain 
Um, Samba was designed by escaped slaves in South America to make themselves ungovernable. When you're playing Samba, when you're, it's, a, it's a particular kind of rhythm, which means that you, you become as a group on the street, an ungovernable, an ungovernable force. And I noted that when the colonial administrators, when the, you know, the sheriffs in North America, when they wanted to put down a particular um, a group of, of first Americans, they, they would shoot the shaman. They would basically make sure they kill the man with the drum or the person, people with the drums. Because once you've still that voice, you've broken the spirit. And the same thing happened in Africa. And I was reading about the way in which the spirit of resistance was so often a rhythmic sound of drumming and dancing. And it just seemed to me from my anthropology that something like that was what we needed. And that explains why Chris Knight got interested in drums. Um, another thing is, why did I get so excited by the prospect of a total solar eclipse? Again, I mean, you know, people can laugh. What's the matter with Chris Knight? Why does he think eclipses are important? Um, well, you know, um, what seemed to me, I'll just try and explain it now. I, I learned about this forthcoming eclipse. I think it was, I learned about it in 1990. I, 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 you know, it's easy for astronomers to tell this. August the 11th, 1999, there would be a total solar eclipse going across Devon. Uh, obviously not just Devon, but, you know, crossing, crossing in England into Devon. Um, okay, why did that matter? Well, I have a, a view, I had a view of the Russian Revolution. And in 1917, in the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks took power. And they wanted their revolution to spread, and it needed to spread. It needed to spread directly and immediately into Germany for that revolution to work. Trotsky, Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, all those who were looking forward to this revolution to end the, con the bloodbath of, of World War uh, I, they knew that the revolution had to be international and, and any revolution which happened in one country had to immediately move across territorial boundaries and become a, a Europe-wide at least and preferably a worldwide revolution in order for it to work. So what I was thinking was about the coming revolution, this one, the one which seemed to me we ought to be able to win before the turn of the century. And it does occur to me that the very best thing would be if we could use the new electronic media, radio, television, and the increasing sudden extraordinary development of the internet to actually make the revolution simultaneous so that a revolution in Britain would be simultaneously a revolution in America and across Europe. And to have a revolution which is simultaneously synchronized, you need a very powerful signal. And the signal shouldn't be just something which somebody's made up, sucking it out of their thumb. It should be a visible signal, an obvious signal, something everyone can agree on. And what better than a total solar eclipse? I mean, it's true that a solar eclipse doesn't, it, it, it concentrates the darkness in a, a particular trajectory. It just goes in a certain line across planet Earth. But still, it's a total solar eclipse. And it, and it happened to be going across England, across Devon and across Europe. And that's pretty important if you're in Europe, if you're in Britain. So I just thought, well, you know, it's looking good. It's just, you know, towards the very end of the millennium, August 11th, 1999, why not, you know, why not provisionally make that a kind of date? So I was working with that date in mind, <coughs> August 11th, 1999. And uh, so that was part of it. And then a number of things happened. I mean, one of the things which happened was having got those drums, let me just say that the drums came from Liverpool. Um, what happened was that um, I got active with the Liverpool um, uh, Dockers dispute. 
Um, I would already, with my students, become involved with Reclaiming the Streets. They needed music, of course, in Reclaiming the Streets. You want to take over the streets, you need music. Um, initially, Reclaiming the Streets, we had these huge, big sound systems giving, you know, garage music and rage, rave music. The trouble with the sound systems, so they're on huge lorries and the police could just pull the plug and, 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 and impound the vehicle. And it just suddenly occurred to me, well, if we've all got knives and forks and saucepans and bin lids and drums and stuff, that make it a lot harder for the police to um, to impound the, you know, our, 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 the systems which make us, the sound systems which make us uh, ungovernable. Anyway, went up to Liverpool on the anniversary of the Dockers dispute, met up with the Liverpool School of Samba, um, thought, right, okay, I'm going to, I didn't chuck it away. The drum, I'd, I'd, the, the big leather drum I'd, I'd got from Chicago wasn't appropriate. It, it was, you know, it was okay, made a nice noise, but I just thought, all right, Samba's it. And, um, and then what happened was that because I brought up, I say I, but I played a, a, you know, a role with others, Ian Fillingham of Reclaimer Streets, Billy Jenks of the Dockers, we, we actually celebrated the first anniversary of the Dockers dispute in Liverpool. And we propelled that dispute into a global dispute. So what happened was a few months after, um, I'm talking now about, what is it now? Uh, <laughs> that was September the 28th, um, 1996. The next year, early next year, 1997, um, John Pilger, in one of his books, said the planet skipped a heartbeat. We managed to, we managed to spread the Dockers dispute, which by now had become a campaign involving um, environmentalists, because, of course, Reclaimer Streets was an environmentalist kill-the-car organization. We actually became a global network. And for two weeks, we stopped Seattle um, in... And we stopped um, Cape Town, we stopped um, Bologna, we stopped, I mean, we stopped ports into around the world. We had a strike where, and I remember I was standing on the picket line in Liverpool with the Liverpool Dockers and my, and my friends in Reclaim the Streets. And I remember, remember this feeling, I'm on a picket line now. My theory in, the, in my book is that all human language, culture, morality is born on the picket line. And here I am with my drum banging it quite loud asked by the dockers to bag it even louder because they needed to make a hole in a few fences and stop the, the noise of the, of the hacksaws. I'm on a picket line and this picket, picket line spreads around the entire planet. It's a wonderful feeling. That was the, I mean, Marx, of course, we've always heard the, the, the slogan, workers of the world unite. It wasn't the biggest strike in terms of numbers of people involved. There were only 500 Liverpool dockers, but in terms of the spread of the strike around the planet, that was the first time, I think it's true to say, that we had workers of the world unite right across planet Earth. And that and, and what we did in Seattle prefigured what happened two years later on November the 30th, 1990 in Seattle with a huge, massive uprising. Um, so these were the things which I was in, involved with. And uh, I suppose I'm just saying really that um, we messed up and uh, I, I don't exclude myself from that. Somehow the revolution which should have happened um, it didn't happen. And um, I don't know, was that the last chance? Will we get another chance? These are difficult questions, aren't they? They're very difficult questions. But um, I wouldn't be able to even talk about this if I didn't feel there was some possibility that we didn't mess up finally and that this human revolution could still be achieved. But we definitely got to get our, our skates on. Now, to getting back to <laughs> what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is the book, blood relations. 
Um, in that book, I, I think I got almost everything right. In other words, all the predictions I made have been um, confirmed. Let me just say one of them. I was backing Engels. Engels argued that the earliest form of family was not the nuclear family. The earliest form of family was um, women would live with them with their kin and their husbands, if you want to use that term, their sexual partners would have to visit them. Uh, which, which, and the term for that is matrilocal residence. So you'd have matrilocal residence, not patrilocal. Women wouldn't move away from their kin um, to live with their, their sexual partners under the, under the power of their in-laws. They would stay with mum, with their sisters, with their brothers, retaining their solidarity with, with their kin. And um, that's called matrilocal residence. And, and matrilocal residence tends to tip um, dissent uh, in kinship in the direction of matrilineal as opposed to patrilineal. Well, throughout the whole of the 20th century, pretty much the whole of the 20th century, certainly from the time of Malinowski, Bronislaw Malinowski in the uh, early 20s onwards, the idea that, that matrilocal residence had anything to do with human origins uh, was regarded as just ridiculous Marxist dogma. Um, so in my book, I said, no, <laughs> early human kinship was matrilineal and matrilocal. And uh, okay, what's the genetics? The brilliant thing about science is that sometimes the scientists come up with inconvenient truths. In, in other words, inconvenient to their own ideological assumptions. We now have the ability, scientists now have the ability to take a few hairs from the head of different people in different parts of any, any continent and look, at the, and look at the genetics, look at the, the nuclear DNA, look at the mitochondrial DNA. The mitochondrial DNA, of course, is transmitted through the female line, the nuclear um, through the, the male line. And it just so happens that having, now that scientists have looked at people across Africa, looked at the hunter-gatherers, looked at the farmers, looked at the herders, it so happens that the mitochondrial DNA data shows a, a clumping pattern where women have been living with mum, living with mum, living with mum, down the generations, whereas men have been moving out, moving out, moving out, so the, the nuclear um, patterns are dispersed, the, the mitochondrial patterns are, are clumped, whereas with the, with the, with the farmers and the, and, the, and, the, and the cattle herders, it's the other way around. So the genetics, it's now called paleogenetics, and anyone interested, we can show you possibly um, just the, the, the references here. The genetics uh, has proven now that early human residence patterns were matrilocal among hunter-gatherers, and, and that's been confirmed in countless different ways. The whole idea of the patrilocal band, the idea that women were always isolated from their kin during in, in the period when we were all hunter-gatherers has completely been um, demolished. So that's a result. Um, one thing I got wrong was the whole, was the dating of the human revolution. Because I was too swayed, I suppose, um, by the archeological, by the archeologists of the time. Um, so Paul, I was, in a, in a, in a, I was actually part of a small group of the, the, the archeologists and paleoanthropologists who later became so well known. Robin Dunbar, Paul Mellers, Chris Stringer, we, were, we formed a little group called Human Evolution Interdisciplinary, Interdisciplinary Research. Um, and these uh, colleagues that I was working with, they were all, they, when they used the term the human revolution, and all of them did, what they meant was um, the transition from the middle Paleolithic to the upper Paleolithic in Europe. That's, that's the time when about 40,000 years ago, when anatomically modern Homo sapiens originally, originating in Africa reached um, Europe, 
and produce this cultural explosion. So when you go to France and you look at the cave paintings of Dodoin and places, you're talk, you're, that's the upper, these are the, that's the, the result of the cultural explosion known as the Upper Paleolithic. And I thought the human revolution had something to do with that. I should have known better because somebody who was already my student, namely Ian Watts, as I was publishing my book, was saying, Chris, they've all got it wrong. And what Ian Watts was telling me was, Chris, they're all saying that, yeah, we evolved in Africa, but we didn't get smart till we hit Europe. And he said, that's racist, but it's also rubbish and it's complete nonsense. Um, and I sort of acknowledged that point in one or two pages in my book, but I didn't make enough of it. And I, the overwhelming impression in my book is that this human revolution was something to do with the upper Paleolithic in Europe. So what I said was, I said to Ian, well, all right, you say it belonged, it, this revolution was an African thing and um, it happened much earlier in Africa. So, all right, well, just go to Africa, wherever you think you need to go, and I'll make a prediction. When you find evidence for the human cultural revolution, I can predict what it will be. It will be a mass of brilliant red ochre, which, I, which I, if you can detect the kind of ochre, what it was used for, it would have been used as art. Uh, but not for painting on cave walls, but are used as cosmetics on the human body. And so, you know, Ian, <laughs> he's now the ochre specialist. He's the world number one ochre specialist. He's the ochre specialist at a place called Blombos Cave. He's part of a team with Chris Entenwood and others who have discovered the world's first art. It dated back to about 70,000 years ago. It takes the form of these beautiful crayons made of brilliant red ochre, the color of blood. Uh, a, a prediction which I made and which has become true, even though it's actually, it's, it's, I'm very happy about it. It's pushed the, the date of the human revolution back a bit. And I have to admit, it's also made the revolution a much more long drawn out affair. It wasn't anywhere near as sudden. The other thing I did was wrong. I just, I need to say this as well. I, in my book, I treated, um, I mean, okay, let me just start, start at the beginning. My book is called Blood Relations, Menstruation and the Origins of Culture. It is not a book about menstruation. It's a book about human origins. It's just that all books about human origins leave out, first of all, they leave out women. They leave out the female of the species. But even if they sort of vaguely talk about women that gather or mention something to do with women having babies or whatever, <laughs> they, will they will never these days discuss male and or female reproductive physiology and how that's evolved. And the last thing anyone will do is break the taboo on even discussing either menstruation or the moon, despite the fact that it's absolutely ridiculous because anyone interested in the origin of taboos will know that the most powerful taboos, uh, even in patriarchal societies, but in a different way among hunter-gatherers are around uh, blood, the blood of animals and the blood of women. And the moon is just absolutely central. There's no way of measuring time or organizing anything really without doing it by reference to both the sun um, and uh, the moon. Um, but in talking about menstruation in my book, I did make a mistake, which was that I treated menstruation as a kind of biological no signal. Um, in other words, I, I linked the, the onset of menstruation to what I call the sex strike, women's coalitionary resistance to, to um, to males or, or unwanted male behavior. Um, but it, but that, that was actually um, not correct. And the, the correct Darwinian version is to say that menstruation actually divulges information to the opposite sex um, about female fertility, which can lead to, or would, unless it's dealt with by women, will, will lead to conflicts both between different females 
and between um, uh, males for access to females who can get pregnant. I won't go into it all, it, the, but the new version of the theory is called Female Cosmetic Coalitions, mainly developed by Camilla, Camilla Power, but also in, 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 in cooperation with Ian Watts, the yoga specialist. So that's a, an important development, the, the, the whole topic of menstruation. But I suppose I just want to stress that my book was never about menstruation. And just because menstruation went into the subtitle, it's, it's too often just dismissed. Another point I suppose I should stress is this, that I, when I, sometimes I, I meet colleagues at University College London, um, for, I mean, my friend, my close friend, Jerome Lewis, he said, oh, Chris, I've been told that, um, that the menstrual cycle has got nothing to do with the moon. It's only 28 days. It's got, it's, and you, you, in your book, you mentioned, you, you seem to be saying that the menstrual cycle is 29.5 days length, uh, uh, the average length of the cycle. And um, I, okay, I mean, again, <laughs> Uh, I don't know if Camilla's here and she can join in the discussion later on, but we've now got um, menstrual apps, apps. Women can use these little watches which measure their cycles. There's an article that came out in 2019 um, examining, I think, 600,000 menstrual cycles, you know, getting on for a million menstrual cycles. And it turns out, what's the average length of the menstrual cycle? Obviously, it, it's slower when you're young. It speeds up a bit towards later life. But in the period around maximum fertility for a woman, it's the, the figure comes out at something like 29, 29.5 or 0.43 days. And then I, I, I come up with the figures in a moment. <laughs> what happens is that when you look at the um, body mass index of people, some people are slightly plumper than others. Hunter gatherers tend to have a very, a, a relatively low body mass index, it simply means hunter gatherer women tend to be quite fit, don't tend to be obese, quite lean. And if we take the average body mass index for hunter-gatherers, and the, the good figures is, is something like 25. I mean, the figures here don't, don't mean anything unless we get into what, what we're talking about. But it come, the, 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 the end of the story is this. The length of the human female menstrual cycle on average is 29.5 days. 29.5 days. That's the time it takes for the moon to pass through its phases as seen from the Earth. You might think, well, okay, so what? Well, with other primates, it's not, it's not that. It's for chimpanzees, it's 36 days. For bonobos, it's 40 days. The other different primates, we have, we have of course, great apes. But if you take the different great apes, some of them are quite close. The orangutan is 29 days. Um, and female orangs live in trees. And obviously, that it would make, make a bit of sense for them to be kind of aligning to, to some extent with, um, with the moon, because they, you know, the, the moon is visible if you live in, high up in trees. But anyway. We humans have the length, we have exactly, put it this way, exactly the length of menstrual cycle you would predict if having the ability to synchronize with each other using the moon as a clock had been adaptive in the course of human evolution. Of course, other people say, oh, Chris, don't worry about it. It's just a coincidence. And of course, I agree, it could be a coincidence, but don't dismiss a coincidence of that, of that precision without first of all exploring whether there could be an adaptive Darwinian reason for precisely that length of cycle. And of course, as comrades will know, in my, in my book and, and, and so many things have happened since then, completely validating this idea, you just can't be, you can't be evolving in Africa as a, as a, as a hominin while ignoring the fact that, the, that around you are creatures, including lions and other carnivores, who hunt by night and particularly use their night vision to hunt particularly when there's, when, when there's no moon in the sky. And so there's a massively, massive amount of evidence these days that it's, only, it's kind of weird Western people who live on, in, in conditions you know, of, of 
I mean, not just patriarchal religions, which are hostile to both two things, both the women and the moon, but also today's street light means that we're hardly aware of the moon. You cannot possibly have had a species of hominin evolving in Africa without taking both sun and moon and night and day into account and knowing how to, in a, in a bodily way, developing instincts and, 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 and reflexes to take account of whether or not there's a moon in the sky, whether you want to go out, travel overnight, um, and so forth. So that, that again, um, has been vindicated. We now know what the length of the human and female menstrual cycle is with some precision thanks to these menstrual apps. Perhaps I will stop. The, the book has been corroborated, I would say, magnificently. On another level, it's almost as if my book had never written. There's so many anthropologists who, who kind of recognise that if they were to take account of my book, they would have to sort of <laughs> remodel their entire career and all the various things they'd be doing it's too much turmoil, too much, you know, too unsettling, really, to take too much account of this book, and much better to just set it aside as a sort of rather strange thing which happened in the 19, in 1991. Most people would say that know about it was a pretty magnificent attempt, a pretty magnificent putting together of pretty much everything: archaeology, but you know, biology, uh, social anthropology, cultural anthropology. Nothing since has quite measured up to it. But it's easiest uh, to just set it aside and pretend it was it never was. That's it. That's the end of my talk.